everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Juris Advances, not your average DEI podcast. Juris Advance is an extension of Juris Solutions Legal, also referred to as JSL, with a primary focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the legal industry. We are honored that you've taken time out of your schedule to gather with us as we share, learn, and grow together as one legal community. JSL is one of the largest certified women-owned legal services firms in the country. We are passionate about providing stellar legal talent to our law firm, corporate and government partners nationwide. We're even more passionate about the strides that we are taking with our new diversity consulting service line, Juris Advance. The purpose of our show is to have authentic conversations about the gaps within DE&I in the law. So tune in each month as a different host from JSL's DEI team pulls up a mic and shoots the breeze with key legal and diversity leaders across the country. Excited yet? Well, you will be. We certainly are. So let's get this show on the go. And remember, this is not your average DEI podcast. Hello and welcome back to Jury Solutions new podcast series, Not Your Average DEI Podcast. My name is John Perala and I am a member of the JSL new DEI consulting division, Jurist Advance. I'm also joined by a friend of mine. Hi, how are you? Thank you, John. My name is Vicki Hubbard. I am very excited to be a part of the conversation today. Great. Today's topic is it's something that really affects all various areas of diversity when it comes to law. The title is Strategies for Retaining Diverse Legal Talent. I'm extremely excited to have as our guest a true DEI pioneer and a friend of mine, Mr. Wesley Bazell. Wes is a currently the Senior Assistant General Counsel and Managing Director of Political Laws and Ethics Program at Altria, a Fortune 500 corporation. He is also the immediate past president of the National LGBTQ Plus Bar Association and has been named in championing DEI in both corporate and legal-specific communities. Wes was recently included on the prestigious 2021 LGBTQ plus Bar Association and has been instrumental in championing DEI in both corporate and legal specific communities. So congratulations, Wes. I'm really, really excited that you were able to join us. Thanks, John. Happy to be here. So when I met you, I believe that the draw basically was because we were both advocates for the LGBTQ plus community. And that's a big portion of my being and what I believe in. And I believe you as well. We also, a couple months ago, Wes and I did a webinar called DiverseCon, where we both were on the panel. Wes was one of the speakers and I was actually one of the co-hosts. So I would like to do is I'd like to begin with a threshold question. Is that okay, Wes? Sure. So my question is, and I asked a lot of people in DEI. What motivated you to become an advocate for DEI? Well, thanks, John. And again, thanks for having me on this podcast. DEI is something that I'm very passionate about. And I'll start by saying my pronouns. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And, you know, I think to answer your question, a lot of people from diverse communities, I don't know if I really had a choice. I was often the only LGBTQ plus person in a room in professional settings early in my career. And so it was something that I think all of us who find ourselves diverse in, in some form or fashion really see the need for it. And it is a belief that we are doing it to help those who come after us. So they don't have to face the same hurdles that we have faced in our you know, either personal or professional lives. 
That is a great explanation because I totally understand what you mean by that. I started out in corporate America and had probably some of the same similar situations you have had. Not that they were all bad, but it was just, you feel a little bit like the odd man out, as they say, when you decide to come out to people in, in, your, in your corporate environment. I also understand and recently read that you were appointed as commissioner of the American Bar Association's Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Commission. Can you tell me a little bit about the responsibilities that come with that appointment? Sure. Well, the American Bar Association's SOGI Commission, as we call it, is one of the four ABA goal three entities. And so the ABA set up four goals that guide it in representing the legal profession and, and the interests of justice. And goal three of that really aims to promote full and equal participation in the ABA, in the legal profession, and in the justice system by everyone and eliminate bias in the legal profession and the justice system as well. So the SOGI Commission, is made up of 12 commissioners appointed by the ABA president. And we as a commission lead the ABA's commitment to diversity inclusion for LGBTQ plus people. Again, you know, who are members, who are in the legal profession, and who are involved in the justice system in some form or fashion. And so our work is to provide programming to members on LGBTQ plus issues. We host a scholarship program for LGBTQ plus law students. We celebrate legal champions, both allies and those who are members of the LGBTQ plus community. And we really serve as a resource to the ABA and its leadership, provide input on ABA's House of Delegates resolutions. So it's adopting the policies on LGBTQ plus issues and you're really advocating for change. I think, you know, most recently we worked with the American Bar Association's president, Reggie Turner, on a letter to the Florida General Assembly opposing what is known as the Don't Say Gay Bill, which essentially would prohibit any discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity in schools to the extent that it would prohibit children from learning about LGBTQ plus civil rights leaders, for instance. And so the ABA, through President Turner, issued a statement to the leaders of the Florida legislature, noting the ABA's opposition to that bill. And I know you're involved in so many different aspects of working on different committees, and I know you speak a lot. So I read that you were a member of the House delegates who voted in favor of the ABA were requiring schools to educate students about bias, racism, and cross-cultural competency. So I serve as the voting member to the ABA's House of Delegates for the National LGBTQ Plus Bar Association. Mm -hmm. And so the House of Delegates is essentially the policymaking body for the ABA. And related to this ABA rule that you're talking about, they have a standards for approval and accreditation of law schools. And this rule sets forth the criteria that a school must meet to be ABA accredited. Right now, there are 199 ABA accredited law schools in the U.S. And at our mid-year meeting this month, the ABA's House of Delegates concurred with changes recommended to the law school accreditation standards that would mandate that law schools provide bias training to students as they begin their legal studies, at least once more before they graduate. This was a change that was supported by 150 law school deans who wrote the ABA in 2020 supporting this change. And in additionally, and I think from the National LGBTQ Q plus bars perspective. One of the other great things about this rule change was that the standards for the first time in their history required that schools have non-discrimination policies that prohibit discrimination based on gender identity or gender expression. And really over the last several years, the National LGBTQ Bar has been working directly with law schools to encourage them to voluntarily add this protection. And we've been tracking it. We have some information on our website on that. But now the ABA change, this rule change would mandate 
that they have these protections within their policies. What was, I think, really great about both of these rule changes was that they were overwhelmingly adopted by the House of Delegates. No one spoke in opposition to them. And, you know, I think at the base level, everyone understands that lawyers are required to represent, ably represent your clients. And a lawyer that doesn't have cultural competencies, not able to do that. And so this is, I really think, is a positive step forward to help provide law students additional cultural competency that they need to be good attorneys for their clients. Yeah, no, that, that's fantastic. And you know what? It's the future. That's what I like about that. It's basically giving people an opportunity to start changing law in general, especially when it comes to bias. And, you know, law firms are struggling as it is to uh, meet their diversity goals. So it's great that you guys did that and put that in place. So what I like to do now is I like to transition and talk about the industry tends to be a bit behind, especially in the law firms. So they're struggling with with all aspects of putting a diversity program in place. So other industries aren't having the same issues, not to that extreme. So from your point of view, are you able to share a few your thoughts about why you think the legal industry is trailing in the metrics? And what do you think needs to be done to move the needle? I mean, to make those positive changes? Certainly. When I think about this topic, I'm reminded of a, a song from Hamilton and a line from that song is that, you know, I may not live to see our glory, but I would gladly join the fight. Right. And so this has been a very, very long fight. And there is a really sad reality here. You know, despite really dramatic increases in the pipeline and other problems that still exist within the pipeline, you know, about 30% of law school graduates are people of color. But the legal profession is really among the least diverse professions of any other profession in our country. 81% of lawyers are white, 64% are male. 98% are straight. And if you look at law firms specifically, the numbers become even more depressing if that's possible. So really from 2009 to 2021, the percentage of African-American partners at law firms increased by 0.5%. So half a percentage point. And I mentioned the pipeline, despite increases in people of color going to law schools, the number of black associates during that same time period also increased by just a little over one half of a percentage point. And less than 4% of all partners are women of color. Black women and Latinx women continue to represent less than 1% of all partners in US law firms. And in the last 17 years, the number of LGBTQ plus partners at law firms has only increased 1.5%. So this is a multifaceted, long-term problem that we have not, as a legal profession, been able to solve. There are, I think, a number of reasons for that. First of all, creating diversity and inclusion requires four things that lawyers are particularly bad at, I think. It requires being an engaged manager. Employees have to feel included and they need an engaged manager to do that. It requires analyzing data to know where you stand and know where you're you need to make progress. It requires showing vulnerability. You don't always know the answer to every question. And as we know, us lawyers don't like to admit that. Uh, and it requires, yeah. it requires to be innovative and look at new ways to address these problems. And the other piece of the puzzle, I think, is there are not enough clients of law firms who are pushing firms to get better. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of talk and Fortune 500 companies have engaged in window dressing on this issue for years. The companies dating back for more than 30 years have issued these open letters to law firms demanding that they diversify. I think the first one was in the late 80s with General Motors. 
about a decade later, the Bell South General Council, along with 500 other GCs, signed on, and there have been a couple in the past few years as well. But these platitudes aren't progress. And part of that is there is no financial incentive for the law firms to diversify because the sad reality is that a lot of top corporations have you know what we call these core law firms that in-house counsel utilize. And the law firms know that in order for a company to divorce itself from a law firm, if you're one of their core law firms, that is a very dramatic and traumatic experience that can affect the corporation. And so there is work on the boundaries and on the edges, I think, where you may not get this one project, but when you look at it in the grand scheme of things, you're still getting 95% of the work that you previously got, even though you are not as a law firm making progress on diversity and inclusion. And so it is a struggle. It is something that corporations and general counsels need to step up and actually put put actions behind their words. And there are, are a few doing that, but not enough. And it's the lawyers within the law firms needing to embrace change and lean in and look forward to see what they can do to create change and make their internal communities more diverse. That's a great way of putting it. And I think most of the people that will be listening to this podcast have had certain struggles in going into a law firm, thinking it's going to be diverse, and then realizing it's really not as diverse as they were led to believe. So these changes that you're talking about really need to happen at the top, I would imagine, at the law firm. I think the pressure that they will receive, corporations, will make the change. And I've seen that happen. I love listening to you talk about these things because you always have statistics behind everything you have. Yes, I agree with these statistics. I think that's a good way to engage listeners. And not only that, it's factual information. You're speaking from your area of expertise and also adding in those numbers paints a vivid picture to what it is we're discussing today. As John said, thank you so much for that explanation. It was very detailed and, and much needed. So as we examine today's topic, strategies for retaining diverse legal talent, we love to hear your perspective, Wes, on the different pieces of the recruitment and retention puzzle as it relates to diverse legal talent. In your opinion, what do you think are some of the key challenges when recruiting and retaining diverse lawyers? Yeah, and certainly, again, is a multifaceted issue. And I think the struggle that we as a legal profession face is that it's not like we've achieved diversity inclusion with one set of individuals and not another. We are lacking diversity across the board. So it's true for you know female attorneys. It's true for attorneys of colors. It's true for LGBTQ plus attorneys. Um, and there's not a single program or policy or practice that will solve this lack of representation, but there are certainly steps that companies and law firms you know, should be taking to really create that ecosystem where diverse individuals can grow and thrive. What I find heartening, I guess, despite all these depressing statistics, is that firms are talking about diversity and inclusion and equity. And now we have to move beyond the words and, and really go to the deeds. And so, you know, I think we have seen a period, and there's some certainly employers that are still like this, where we are inviting people in with our words, but showing them that they don't belong with our actions. I think that it starts at the very beginning, quite frankly, you know, with recruitment. Big law firms, and I, you know, I come from a, uh, having spent almost seven years at a big law firm. 
big law firms are notorious for their, you know, what I'll, I'll politely call their snobbery of the pedigrees of those that they recruit. So they are only recruiting at, you know, what we call T20 or the top 20 law schools. But I would guarantee you that a top graduate at a T50 law school is as qualified as a top graduate at a top 20 law school. And there may be various reasons for someone not going into a T20 law school that don't include them not getting in. You know, I have heard and, and know of people who went to a top 10 undergraduate school and couldn't afford the extra loans and they got a full scholarship to a law school that was outside of the top 20 and for financial reasons decided to go there. So the mere sort of belief that if you're not in a top 20 law school, you're not talented or you're not smart or you won't be a good attorney is quite frankly ludicrous. But these law firms hold on to this belief and it perpetuates because that means all these law firms are going after a small subset of individuals who are diverse at those top 20 schools and leaving everybody else out from the other schools. And so I really do think that we need to widen the gate here and then also look at what we do from a retention standpoint. I mean, we all know the stats where the vast majority of young associates have left by the sixth or seventh year if they are from marginalized communities, from law firms. And so creating a system to ensure that doesn't happen is what's going to be necessary. And it's going to be necessary that law firms not look at all people of color are all marginalized community members through the same lens. You have to target the solutions to this problem. And it, there is not a one-size-fits-all solution that works either for community members or for organizations as well. So for the individuals that are listening to this podcast, what advice would you give them? If they're from a marginalized community and they're trying to get into a law firm, what advice would you give them? Or even somebody that was going to law school, starting to go to law school, to excel because of the way things are, to excel their career or get them in a place where they feel comfortable? You know, I mean, utilize networking as much as you can. The law firms are still also in large part based on relationships. And I know many a law firm that recruit at a certain school outside the top 20, for instance, just because there's a key partner who went to that school, either as an undergrad or as a law student. And so connecting, you know, finding the people who went to your college, who maybe have gone to your law school and connecting with them and proving yourself through extracurricular activities as well, I think is certainly helpful. My hope is, is that law firms are looking at this more broadly than they were when I graduated. I think that's maybe starting to change, but we aren't where we need to be quite yet. And that's great. I believe that as well. I think things have changed, but I don't think they're anywhere near where they need to be. That was great advice you gave, which kind of leads me into the next question regarding retention strategies. And I know this is a topic you know a lot about. How important is mentorship and sponsorship at various levels of, within an organization? John, I think it's hugely important. I think both are extremely important with sponsorship being the most important here. You've got to have people who are in positions of power, who are investing in your career and helping you succeed. And I think, again, the nature and, and general personality of, of lawyers, this is not something that we're great at, but we're in the same boat with a lot of corporations and other organizations as well. You know, I think Lean In recently found that less than a quarter of Black women reported feeling that they had the sponsorship they needed to advance their careers. Right. So there is this huge dearth of sponsorship that is occurring. And so the problem is it can be hard to find a sponsor. 
quite frankly, uh, if you are a diverse individual. And the best sponsor in many cases is someone who doesn't look like you, who doesn't have the same attributes as you do. And so you need people who are the white cisgendered men who are in these law firms stepping up and being a sponsor. I think sponsorship and mentorship also helps address the isolation that one can feel if you're part of a marginalized community and in a law firm. It can help address attrition as well. I think the other thing I always think about here is that mentorship on the mentorship side, mentorship is not dependent on your title. It's not dependent on your seniority. A lawyer who is a second year associate knows more than a lawyer who is a summer associate a student who's a summer associate and a lawyer who is a fourth year associate knows more than a first year associate. And so it's really also looking for ways to help others, even if you don't have, you know, you may not have all the answers yourself, but helping out and that concept of lifting as you climb really applies to every stage of your career. You don't just do that once you reach the pinnacle of your career 30 years after graduating law school. No, and I agree with you because the network is a big part of the success. And I think the mentorship is what helps you develop the network, especially if you're bringing them new to the industry. And I know that you've done a lot of mentoring, so you're speaking the truth, my friend. So Wes, in your opinion, within a law firm or corporation, what role does the leadership team play in attracting and retaining diverse legal talent? You know, so I'm a compliance attorney. And one of the things that you hear a lot in the compliance world is tone at the top. And that, you know, in the compliance setting means that you need your leaders, your CEO, your executives to talk about ethical behavior and set the tone for everyone else and set the standard of behavior. That is really the same for diversity and inclusion. You need leaders to show up and stand up, be active and visible on DNI issues. And so they need to, you know, roll up their sleeves and get involved in this. They really need to embed this in every communication or almost every communication that they have. I think we have to move beyond this sort of sort of checkbox approach to diversity and inclusion. And so they shouldn't, you know, we're in February right now, which is Black History Month. So you need to talk about Black history in months other than February too. You need to talk about LGBTQ plus issues in months other than June for Pride. Yeah. Talk about AAPI issues other than in April. It really needs to be holistic. It needs to be embedded in really the DNA of our communications. And I see it as leaders having to have diversity and inclusion as a daily agenda item. Uh, What are they doing? Uh, And this really applies to all of us, quite frankly, but what are they doing on a day-to-day basis to advance DNI, to help attract and retain diverse talent? And by serving as that role model for inclusion and leading the way and being very intentional about identifying the barriers that are present within their workplaces from recruitment to retention to advancement, the whole nine yards, and then being bold about addressing those hurdles. At its very core, this is a business challenge and leaders and CEOs and managing partners need to address the lack of diversity and inclusion in our profession as a business challenge like they would any other business challenge. That was a great answer, Wesley. So some of the key practices that you've implemented or observed that you recommend to attract and retain diverse legal talent, what would you recommend? 
Yeah, and it's I think it's different from where you sit. So I sit in an in-house counsel role. It's a little different from a law firm role. So I'll, I'll talk about both of them. You know, from an in-house counsel perspective, know that you can sponsor and advocate for young up-and-coming associates who are diverse, who are doing work for you, who you think are great. Stepping in and letting the partner know, the managing partner know, the head of the practice group know that you see value in this individual, and also yourself telling the individual that you see value in them, I think is hugely important. So it goes back to that sort of sponsorship idea that we talked about. I think in-house counsel are in a great position to what I would call utilize the power of the disruptive question. You know, don't be afraid to have those hard conversations or ask those tough questions. If you're getting pitched as an in-house counsel and the law firm brings in a bunch of straight white men, ask why, you know, address those things head on. I think it's, you know, similar to where, where we also started. It's setting clear expectations of your outside counsel, letting them know that you expect your teams to be diverse, that you're monitoring it, that you're looking at it. Hopefully your corporation has a way to monitor like we do at Altria your spend. Um, so we have a program through our, our electronic billing that we can look and see how diverse the attorneys who are working for us from an out, a law firm are. And if you see that the statistics aren't where you want them to be, you can go back to the law firm and say, hey, I want more diversity on this work that I'm doing. Because we all know that there is power in diversity in and of itself, but there's also a good business sense for diversity and providing and having different opinions and different ideas, really, especially in the legal profession, leads to better results. And then, you know, as a law firm, for those who are in leadership positions, it's advocating for those changes. It's advocating for, you know, looking at other law schools. It's advocating for creating a program to, to help sponsor and mentor people of color or LGBTQ plus young lawyers. It's really looking at what you're doing and seeing what more you can do and pushing to make it happen, whether it's in your the practice group that you might control or it's within the office or in the entire law firm. So I think, you know, there's always a lot to do and we have to be intentional about it. We have to take an approach that is thoughtful and that we can address the issue and, you know, setting goals, looking at metrics, using that data to help ensure that we're not just, you know, trying something and assuming it's working without verifying that it's creating a more diverse and inclusive workplace environment. Thank you so much, Wes, for all the information you've shared with us today, the food for thought that we're taking away from this engaging conversation. So as we wrap things up for this episode, is there any additional information or final message that you'd like to mention or might not have touched upon? Anything you'd like to say to our listeners? Sure. Well, realizing that, as we say, that I'm probably preaching to the choir here with the audience of the podcast, but we all know that this is hard work. And the work can be harder depending on how you identify and your diversity status, but it, it can be exhausting, but it is also important. And so it's just remembering because all of us get burned out and all of us feel the grind of toiling away on DE&I issues and sometimes not feeling like you're making progress, or not feeling like the organization's making progress. But it's not just about changing the organizational culture for you. It really is thinking about how you're changing it for everyone who's coming after you. And I'll leave you with this, I guess. The last line of the play, Angels in America, the character says, the great work begins. And so I think the great work begins with each of us on DE&I 
And it's, it's important if you are a person of color, it's important if you're an LGBTQ plus person, it's important if you are a white cisgender straight male to all work to advance DE&I. But we all know that a lot of it falls on those of us who are parts of marginalized communities. And so take the time you need, take the rest when you need it, but realize that you're doing the work, not just for you, but for others as well. Thank you, Wes. That was great advice. We really appreciate your time. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed the conversation today and I hope you have a great rest of the week. Great. Thank you so much. And that is a wrap for today. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Stay tuned on Jury Solutions Legal's new podcast series, Not Your Average DEI Podcast. Until next time, everyone.